You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. This episode of the Times Higher Education podcast is sponsored by Routledge. Routledge is one of the world's leading academic publishers, publishing thousands of books and online products each year, serving instructors, scholars, and professional communities worldwide. From advice on engaging your students to professional development tools, Routledge offers all the resources you need to elevate your career in teaching and academia. Visit the Routledge website to browse key titles in your area and access free resources to help you enhance your teaching today. In an exclusive offer to THE listeners, get 20% off orders using code THE20. That's code THE20 before the offer expires on October 22nd, 2022. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. Some might call it an art, others a science. Either way, teaching is at the heart of the higher education mission, and it's fundamental to student success. Too often, however, people are placed in university teaching positions with very little professional training or support. In academic environments obsessed with research metrics and funding, Teaching can be seen as a burden or a second-rate academic activity that distracts you from the real work in the lab or in the archives, the stuff that will secure that coveted tenured or permanent position at an institution. By the time you do become a lecturer or professor, people kind of expect you to know what you're doing. Someone in a teaching and learning center at a U.S. university once told me that they had to offer anonymous appointments to their faculty so that they would feel comfortable reaching out for support. But the pandemic revealed just how important skilled teachers are to higher education. Getting advice to improve your teaching is something that everyone can benefit from, whether you're just starting out or you're a seasoned professor. And we know that teaching and learning requires a community of support to share ideas, to get things wrong and learn from each other's mistakes. In this episode, we asked educators across the world, from Iceland to Australia, to share their top teaching tips to create a mini teaching community in podcast form. There's advice on everything from how to provide personalized learning and offer alternative assessments to how to design a course with students' emotions in mind. I also spoke with David Dodick, a sessional lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley, and the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto, about his passion for teaching and some common mistakes he's seen his teaching students make. So sharpen your pencils or make sure your laptop is charged, whatever mode of note-taking you prefer, and prepare to get schooled on how to teach. I'm Dr. Becky Lewis. I'm a lecturer in evolutionary biology at the University of East Anglia. My top tip for teachers is to always be yourself. When I first began as a lecturer, I struggled a little bit with imposter syndrome. I wanted to present myself as somebody very competent and professional, but I came across as a bit aloof. Then lockdown hit and I had to do my lectures from my spare bedroom. So all of my um, aloof presentation went out of the window and the students got to see a lot more of my personality. And they responded really well to this. The result of this was that I bonded with them a lot more, despite not actually seeing them face to face and lecturing online only. As a result of this, I grew in confidence and I began to enjoy my job more and I think do it much better. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Ivory from the University of Edinburgh. 
I'd like to talk to you about the role of personalising a student's experience to help your teaching at university. Now, I until recently taught our undergraduate compulsory course for first years and had 400 students. So how did I personalise the experience for 400 students? The answer is I didn't, but there are four or three things I'd like to tell you about that helped that process. First, I played music at the start of each lecture. I chose the first week, and after that, I got different students to choose the music that students walked into. That meant that they felt part of the community. Second, I used names. So if someone put up their hand, I first said, what's your name? Shuming, please answer. What's your name? Josh, please, what's your view? And then I tried to remember those names. Often you had the same people answering in following weeks. I'm going to come back to that at the end. Third, I shared stories. I shared a very personal story about my own experience of nerves when I was younger and how I attempted to overcome that. And I allowed one of our students to share a very, well, I shared her story with her permission on her grandfather dying, which was uh, very moving and emotional. I looked over as I was telling her story that she had asked me to tell to the class, and I saw the girl next to her giving her a hug. Now, this was about week four of the first year of university. They couldn't have known each other long, but they'd created that bond and they felt a sense of belonging in that place. I'd said I'd come back to the point about names. At the end of semester, of course, we all get anonymous course feedback, and I got one piece of feedback I'll never forget. One of the students wrote, Sarah didn't know my name, but that's because I never put my hand up because I didn't have confidence. But I loved that she knew other people's names. She cared enough about us to remember those names, and it made me feel like even though I didn't have confidence to speak, she wanted me to be in that classroom in that lecture hall. I hope that's helped with your, uh, with a suggestion of how you can personalise the experience for students, even in some of our biggest lecture halls. Hello, my name is Jack Wayne. I'm a teaching focused associate professor in microbiology based at the University of Queensland in Australia. When I'm not teaching undergraduate microbiology classes with over a thousand students, I'm researching the big issues in teaching and learning and writing about them on my website, jackwayne.com.au. I also run a YouTube channel called Biolab Collective, focusing on the value of learning and a science education. I've won awards for teaching excellence at the school, faculty, and university levels. I've also received national teaching recognition, the Australian Awards for University Teaching Excellence in the Biological Sciences, as well as being named the overall Australian University Teacher of the Year in 2020. I'm often asked to provide advice for teachers just starting out, and the thing about teaching is that everyone has an opinion. New teachers are hardly lacking in the unsolicited advice category. I'll do my best to cut to the chase and hopefully provide some value, focusing on three main points of emphasis. One, you don't have to be entertaining. Sure, it helps to be charismatic as a speaker and communicator, but that shouldn't be your first priority in professional development. It can sometimes feel like our value as an educator is tied to our ability to entertain our students, but therein lies a bottomless pit of insecurity. To keep things in perspective, stand-up comedians who, unlike teachers, are paid solely based upon how entertaining they are, take years to develop 15 minutes worth of material, whereas the average lecture runs for 50 minutes and some workshops run for three to six hours. Designing classes around entertainment value alone over that long period of time is just not sustainable and will have you running on fumes 
very quickly. I think a better use of your time instead is to redirect your energy in uncovering why the subject matter is inherently interesting, why it's worth your students' time to know about this, even if it is the first and last time to hear about the topic. If you can deflect attention away from your own anxieties as a presenter and spark organic student interest in the learning materials, you won't have to worry about how many jerks you have left up your sleeve that day. Two, knowing your value in the classroom. Odds are the first class you teach won't be on a topic you know everything or even anything about. You will quickly realize how truly interdisciplinary everything is and how little any of us actually know. Experts are usually rewarded for the depth and specificity of our knowledge, but in teaching, breadth and scope are actually much more useful. At least that was my experience in the first five years of teaching. I was never given a class that I felt entirely comfortable with, even with my training across multiple disciplines and areas, biochemistry, cell biology, microbiology, bioinformatics. I had to become a quick study and figure out shortcuts for learning new concepts online. The breadth of my knowledge base expanded to a point where I could make connections between most concepts and something of interest. The more I taught, the more I realized that my value as a teacher is not regurgitating expansive tomes of knowledge on demand. Instead, my skills in connecting new concepts to students' existing understanding was what could maximize their learning experiences. Context is everything, and students engage with subject matter when it's relevant to their everyday lives. Every teacher brings something different to the table, and it's up to you to articulate your value. Three, you don't need to have all the answers. Exactly how much should teachers know before stepping foot into a classroom? And is knowing it all the ultimate aim of our professional development? Now, this is a common end game in research where you have to read every paper out there before you're ready to write your own. But in teaching, this seems to have diminishing returns. Knowledge is always changing and online search engines are omnipresent across all of our devices. If every one of your exam questions can be answered after spending two seconds with Dr. Google, what's the point for your students to come to class. The best learning experiences I've been involved with are those where I've not had to say too much. A thin line separates a didactic teacher who's doing all the talking from an inquiry-based facilitator posing open-ended question after open-ended question for students to answer. Every student brings a different perspective and it's very exciting for me not knowing how each class is going to go. Change is never easy and right now even the most experienced teachers are trying to find balance in our new normal. As new teachers, you're in the unenviable position of having to navigate a sector that is more uncertain than ever before. Lead by example and show your students how knowledge can only be created through discussion, experimentation, with a little bit of fear sprinkled in. It's okay not being okay straight away, but we can all figure it out together. Hello, my name is Melanie Brown. I'm the manager of teaching excellence at the University of Adelaide. My top teaching tip is don't go it alone. If your institution supports communities of practice or COPs, these are a great way to discuss shared challenges and collaborate on practical solutions. COPs can be known by different names, such as faculty learning communities or professional learning communities, but the underlying idea is the same. Groups of people coming together to share and learn about a topic in which they all have an interest. If your institution doesn't have any supported COPs, you might want to start your own. COPs can be online or face-to-face but they need to meet regularly to maintain connection and momentum. There are three key elements to successful COPs. Firstly, the shared domain. That is, the topic that the group is passionate about, wants to learn more about, or enhance their practice of. For example, 
This could be designing active learning or inclusive teaching practices. The community members will need to identify some objectives around this topic. Does the group want to share practice and create a how-to guide for others? Do they want to collaborate on a project and maybe publish some research? Shared goals are really important. The second key element is sharing of practice and a focus on enhancing that practice. COPs can be a great way to share teaching challenges, but they also need to lead to practical solutions or enhancements. Otherwise, members will eventually question the time they spend on this activity when there are other demands on their time. Lastly, but very importantly, in order for members to feel safe enough to share their practice, there must be trust and respect. This is where community building comes in. A helpful piece of advice for COP facilitators is to create COP meeting agenda around these three elements, domain, practice and community. Is there time for domain learning? For example, the members could discuss a journal paper or listen to a presentation from an expert. Then make sure there is time for members to share their practice or identify ways to enhance practice. This could be done through member presentations or the COP working collaboratively on a good practice guide. Community building can happen any time in a meeting, perhaps through icebreakers at the beginning or through making time for informal chatting over refreshments. Teaching doesn't have to be isolating if you can find or create your community. Hello, my name is Jóna Guðrún Jónsdóttir and I am an adjunct lecturer at the University of Iceland. I specialize in drama education and the impact of drama in relation to children's learning. In my research and practice, I focus on drama and artistic approaches to teaching and learning. And my name is Rannvi Björk Þorkildsdóttir and I am associate professor in drama and theater education at the University of Iceland. And in my research, I also focused on drama and aesthetic approach to teaching and learning. We are the drama education department at the University of Iceland School of Education. And we would like to talk to you about assessment in teachers education. Well, we think it's very important to have diverse assessment in higher education. At the University of Iceland School of Education, we teach trainee teachers and we think that it is important to show and implement a diverse assessment. And by, by using diverse assessment, we are setting a good example for our students. By using, for example, performative approach as an assessment, you give a variety of students opportunity to shine through creativity. And what do you then mean by being creative? Well, for example, uh, creativity is ability to create something new using your imagination, your minds and your experiences. So you build on your own imagination and intuition. Like using podcasts, short stories or digital storytelling, the students that are creative can blossom. Yes, but also they could put on a play or a short scene or make a short movie. But we can also use peer review or critical response process, which means different ways of thinking and communicating. Can you explain the critical response process? Well, 
Their fellow students can, through their supportive structure, reflect on their students' work, ask questions about what was evocative, interesting, exciting, striking, in about the work they have just witnessed. Mm -hmm. And by doing assessment like critical responses processes, you are teaching the teacher trainee to improve their understanding of intended disciplinary learning outcomes. And support them to become self-directed teachers to inspire them to use diverse or creative assessment in their own teaching. Yes, so that's, that's what we believe. Yes, so thank, thank you. you. David Dodick recently wrote a piece for THE Campus titled Classroom Tips for Debunking the Arts and Humanities Employability Myth. In it, he provides some suggestions on how to communicate the value of soft skills to students and how to apply them to numerous careers. That's where we began our conversation. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, you wrote a THE Campus resource for us that was all about the employability myth around uh, arts and humanities degrees. Um, and that was for a Berkeley Changemaker course that you designed. I'm wondering if you could just start off telling us a little bit about that course and where the idea came from for it. Yeah, the course was called Berkeley Changemaker Humanists at Work, and it's part of a larger Berkeley Changemaker movement that's across different departments in, um, in the different departments within UC Berkeley. And Arts and Humanities, you know, has had declining enrollment in particular, and they've had some challenges with that. So this particular course was designed to address that and to sort of question the status quo. And the way that I structured the course, first of all, I was hired for it in late, uh, in late uh, September of 2020, uh, 21 to create like this multifaceted course with an internship program, guest speakers and a curriculum to deliver in January. So I met this challenge by, you know, structuring the course around the theme of debunking the myth that these students often hear, which is what can you do with your degree? And then showing them the world of career possibilities open to them. And then, you know, the course included some really notable guest speakers who were alumni of ANH, which included the former COO of Patagonia, who was an English major, we had uh, one of uh, Hollywood's top divorce lawyers, and she was a rhetoric major. And we had another person who was an English major, who was the former president and CEO of Robert Mondavi Corporation, and also a financial uh, double Emmy Award winning uh, financial journalist. So it was really good. And I think the students profited from the course. One said that it was influential because it made me realize how many industries are looking for employees with humanities backgrounds and the skills gained within those majors. Hmm. You are um, a bit of a, a rare breed, perhaps, within academia in the fact that you've chosen to focus your career on teaching over research. What brought you to choose that path? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, I think I've always been a teacher by nature, but I didn't always realize it. My mother was a K-12 teacher, and I actually majored in commerce as an undergrad, of all things. And then I worked for a while, and then I went to teacher's college and became a K-12 teacher, too. And then after I completed my PhD in education in Canada, I came down to Silicon Valley, where I did some educational consulting, worked even for an education startup, 
and then started higher education teaching and I just loved it and I, and I knew it was my calling. I was so passionate about it and that kind of Silicon Valley experience that I had has actually made me very adaptable in higher education but I plan to do more you know, research and publishing in the future because I think there needs to be this symbiosis between teaching and research to advance more professionally and even personally. And of course, there's a whole field of the scholarship of teaching and learning that exists. You have taught at, at several institutions in the past few, few years, I think six and four years. Um, based on your observations at those institutions and your experiences, what needs to be done to improve the teaching workforce in higher education, do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, the premise of that, that there's something wrong with the teaching workforce, might not be quite accurate, you know, because post-secondary educators are really dedicated to their jobs. You know, lecturers do a lot of the teaching at many institutions, and they're sort of like the workhorses, and actually they have a low compensation and not a lot of job security. Uh, so it's definitely not a nine to five job. So I think our society needs to value teachers more at every level of our education system. But to answer your question, each higher education context is different from public to private universities, from larger to smaller, from diverse to more homogeneous. I think we could do a better job maybe of sharing information with each other across institutions to advance everybody's knowledge. There are some siloed cultures and some that are more open to the cross-pollination of ideas. But I think forums like the THE campus help uh, to sort of achieve this. Thank you for the um, unsolicited plug, David. I appreciate that. I'm curious about um, any sort of perhaps incentive programs or even your opinions about the tenure system, specifically in the U.S. context. Are those counterintuitive to supporting a teaching workforce that you say needs to happen? I wouldn't say that, you know, something is counterintuitive or what, whatever that we have to define, first of all, what needs to happen, I think. You know, what are the outcomes? Different uh, audiences have different visions of what the outcome should be. It just depends who you ask. So I think it's sort of a question that needs to be put in context. Okay. Um, in addition to teaching students, you also teach teachers. Um, tell us what you're focusing on in your digital technologies and education course. Yeah, thanks. It's called Computers in the Curriculum, and it covers topics like knowledge building, computational thinking, gamification of learning, online knowledge communities, immersive technologies like VR and AR, mobile learning. And I think the emphasis in my course is on determining the specific educational needs that these tools can meet pedagogically for teachers and students. And, you know, for me, it's a real pleasure to be back at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education uh, at the University of Toronto, because that, you know, that University of Toronto is my alma mater. So it's a real joy to teach future teachers in this topic. Hmm. And in your work working with future teachers, what are some of the most common mistakes you've seen higher education lecturers make? Uh, thanks for that question, because I've certainly made my share of mistakes. Uh, and I remember one time a student, uh, I contacted them after class and asked them, you know, why was the class so silent today? And they said, well, you were talking too fast and we were missing what you were saying. And I realized it because I was so passionate about the topic that I was sort of rushing through it. But 
I think one of the biggest challenges I see is that many faculty are subject matter experts, but struggle to engage their students. And perhaps this is because not all of them have training in education and teaching and educational theory. So I think in cases like that, centers for teaching and learning on campus can be really helpful with that. And I think, you know, with my teaching background, in fact, I've been able to come into situations and teach courses ranging from sociolinguistics to online teaching and learning to English for foreign students to digital technologies, as we just spoke about. Uh, and I think, you know, another thing that I you know, see somewhat is this adaptation to change, you know, change for the sake of change or you know, change that might be thrust upon you like with the pandemic and, and educators just aren't you know, ready for it and it's no mistake of their own. And also we often hear technology for technology's sake, which is a common mistake, especially in digital education. Yeah, the technology is really just a tool, I always say. We've had other tools for learning before technology. When you think about technology, you think of apps you think of all the things that students can do now that we couldn't do 20 years ago, but tools for teaching are tools for teaching. It really, a lot of them are revolutionary right now because they enable things that were never enabled before, like virtual reality, being able to go, say, from the inner city and visit a place far away and learn about history and civilization and architecture. The tools are there, but what's the pedagogy of the teacher? What are they using as their pedagogy to teach these things and how does it influence educational outcomes? My final question for you, David, is to mine your best tips for teaching at the university level. What would they be? I'll try. Uh, I think, again, context matters in answering a question like this because each situation is different. But here are some of the things I've done that have helped me in the past. Uh, first of all, I try to get to know my students the best I can and then tailor my instruction to their learning needs as much as possible. And I'm always mindful of what my pedagogy is. Am I, uh, you know, traditional, progressive or transformative in doing this? And what are my learning objectives for the students? Are oh, they sorry, David, can I just can I just stop you there and ask you for the for the pedagogical novices among us, myself included, could you just unpack what you mean by traditional progressive and transformative pedagogy? Yeah, and this is sort of inside baseball because it was part of my doctoral work, but essentially traditional is the way you think of with the sage on the stage, the top-down model from professor's lips to students' ears. And when you think about a progressive approach, it's more involving students in the classroom, for example, in the past with whole language literacy movements, you know, bringing the home language into the school. And then when you get into the transformative pedagogy, you're really looking at systemic structures, power structures within school systems, like within a school board. Who is it run by? Who are setting all the uh, curricula and mandates? And how does that impact, for example, linguistic minority students? Some of them may want to change some of those structures so that addresses their needs more from their perspectives, bringing in literature that is more um, culturally uh, relevant to them. Mm, okay, interesting. Yeah, and so what plays into this in my own teaching is this negotiating of identities framework that I've used. And so it just 
takes into account what intersections students are at. And they're actually at uh, various intersections throughout their academic career. Students who are coming from high school to university are at this adolescence to adulthood intersection. And also as they go on, in their undergrad years, they're at this school and work intersection. And then students are always at a linguistic and cultural intersection. For example, students whose home language is different from the standard English that's taught in schools, they have to actually code switch between their home language and the school language. You've got American-born students as well as first-generation students sometimes in your class. And then you take into account all the psychosocial factors that students go through too. So those all play a part, but what I try to do is to be aware of how knowledge is being socially constructed in my courses. And then in very practical terms, I try to be you know, prepared with my material to be organized and, you know, create an engaging classroom environment. And then finally, you know, I try to exercise empathy because a lot of students inevitably you find are facing something difficult. And so just reaching out to them with an email can oftentimes make a difference in their academic trajectory. That's a good tip to end on, I think, David. Um, Thank you so much for your time and your advice. And I'm sure uh, our listeners will find many of those uh, points very helpful. Well, thank you, Sarah. And if any of them uh, would like to be in touch, they can reach me on LinkedIn. Oh, great. I will uh, put a link to your LinkedIn bio in the um, notes for this episode so that way people can find you easily. Thanks so much, David. Take care. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is David Clark and I'm a lecturer in outdoor and environmental education at the University of Edinburgh. The top tip I would like to offer you is teaching away from the campus. In some of the work I do here in Scotland, I help teachers think about how they can connect their subject areas to the local environments around their schools. This is because outdoor learning is actually a requirement of being a teacher in Scotland. The standards for registration incorporate outdoor learning across the curriculum from ages 3 to 18, and outdoor learning is built into the professional teaching standards, whether you are just starting out or if you are a head teacher. Why do I think this is important for university teaching? Well, when most people think of outdoor learning, they might think of fieldwork in geography or environmental sciences. I'd like to offer a much expanded idea of teaching away from the campus, which is really about students having experiences engaging with real-world problems which can be connected to their subject area, whatever that might be. If we think about the university as an institution for social and environmental good, then we could think of the local environment in which a university is nested as offering a rich pedagogical landscape of social and environmental problems to be engaged with. So how might we do this? First, remember that the university does not equal the campus buildings. There are unlikely to be rules restricting where you teach, so think about meeting your students somewhere different. Where might you go? Think about what is local to you that touches on your subject area, whether that be engineering or literature. What themes in your courses might be brought to life and connected to real-world local landscapes and organisations? When thinking about what to do in these places, perhaps start with doing what you normally do – lectures and tutorials. When you become more confident, start to think about how you might have learners engage with these different locations, to ask questions about what is happening in this place, what change might look like, and how change might happen. Perhaps through surveys, interviewing local people, writing projects, or other subject-relevant activities. This type of teaching can be fun, memorable, 
and, through working together to solve problems, give students agency in a changing world. Hello everyone, I'm Leal Hakim from the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Exeter. I'm a senior lecturer and a co-director of Education and Student Experience. We've all experienced at least one lecture when our minds just drifted away and we started thinking about something else. Even if we continued to hear the lecturer and continued to write down what was on the board or slides, our minds were elsewhere. So one teaching tip I would give is try to keep the atmosphere in the room alive. When teaching, show your passion for the subject and your passion for teaching that subject by really connecting with the students. Captivate them and make them excited to be there in the lecture and enthusiastic about learning more on that topic. Speak with them and not at them. And you can do this in so many ways, through your body language, the tone in your voice, and even on the board or slides. Simple things like making use of labels and colors, underlining keywords or equations. If you refer to something you spoke about previously in the lecture, take a few seconds to go back to that page or slide and point towards it. Another good way to keep the atmosphere alive is to bring in a question that the students can work on for a couple of minutes, such as using Mentimeter or another tool that provides real-time feedback. This is also a time for them to connect with their peers. It doesn't have to be difficult or even related to the topic or even prepared beforehand. It can be something simple like on a scale of one to five, how confident are you in repeating the proof we just did? During a lecture, a bond is being formed and that's the bond between the student and the subject that you're teaching. So through showing your passion, you're helping them understand the importance of that subject and that in turn strengthens that bond. Remember that although you're standing at the front, it's the students' minds that really own the room. So try to keep track of the feeling in the room. If, for example, most students are feeling tired, it could be that they've just had a deadline for some coursework, say, then slow down a bit and show them that you understand what the mood of the room is like and that you're willing to adhere to their feelings. By doing that, they will connect better with you and this helps them be more alert during the session. So for now, I'd encourage you to think about the course that you're teaching and what techniques you can use to keep the students with you. Think about your time when you were a student and the teachers that taught you. What little moments and teaching styles do you remember during those lessons? Hi, my name is John Weldon and I'm an Associate Professor at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. Here's my teaching tip. I'll be looking at breaking the ice with groups of new students. Classrooms can be intimidating places for students, especially at the start of a first year or a new year, start of a course or start of a subject. In the first class, uh, students will often file in quietly past an educator caught up in a last-minute wrestle with an AV system that worked like a dream when he tested it yesterday but now has him pulling his hair out. If those students, if the students in the room are new to each other, it can be difficult for them to break that silence, to break that quietude. No one wants to say something silly or appear to be overly 
or mature age student type keen or god forbid attract the attention of that lunatic up the front who's madly trying to plug his laptop into what is very clearly the air conditioning control pad what i like to do in that situation other than make sure i get there early to set up the av and that i say a warm hello to each student as they walk in is to break that silence ahead of time on cold days I'll have a video of a snapping, crackling, roaring fire playing on the screen as they enter. On warmer days, maybe a cool rainforest with tinkling waters and birdsong, or an aquarium, or some video of the Great Barrier Reef. These videos act as a point of interest for the students, provoking conversation of the I thought this was a journalism class kind. They also create a background burble that allows students to talk to each other without being the loudest person in the room, without being overheard. In effect, they act as a pre-icebreaker icebreaker. Also, if you've got a particularly quiet cohort, these videos are useful when you break the class up into smaller discussion groups, as once again, there's no silence to be broken. If there's interest, I'll call for suggestions for appropriate clips students might like me to play at the start of class. Music, snippets from movies, sketches, etc. Having students tell the rest of the class why they chose a particular clip is a great way for them to get to know each other. And in discussing their choice of clip, it's a great way for me to learn more about them. So if you'd like to try this in your class, just head to YouTube for the very best in roaring fire and tinkling rainforest stream videos. And good luck. Hi there, my name is Dr. Stephanie McMahon and I'm a lecturer in the Science of Learning and Arts Education at the School of Education, the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. My top teaching tip is design learning and teaching experiences with emotions in mind. Here's a little vignette to help illustrate. It's the start of a new semester. You enter the classroom for your first workshop of the year and you're running it as a hybrid course for the first time. As you enter the room, you notice some students already gathered. A small group is excitedly chatting and laughing, obviously happy to see one another and be back on campus. You smile at them and welcome them to the course. They return your greeting with a smile and thanks. A scattering of other students have taken their seats at various tables around the room. You make your way around the tables, saying hello and striking up some small talk. You move to the lectern and start setting up the audio-visual system. The screens flicker to life, much to your relief. You turn your attention now to setting up the online link. As you log in, black boxes start popping up on the screen. Some morph into the image of the student at the end of the call, or their names remain, whilst others reveal profile pics or photos of loved pets. Again, you quietly sigh with relief as the online system does what it needs to do. You take the time to say hi to each of the students. As you prepare to commence the class, you actually notice that your anxiety levels are starting to rise. What if the video drops out? What if the links don't work? What if I saved the wrong presentation? What if the students don't engage? What if they find the class too boring, too hard, too easy? What if, what if, what if? You take a few deep breaths. You reassure yourself that you are well prepared and that should the unexpected occur, you can handle it. You recognize that you are feeling anxious because you know that first impressions count. 
that the students will make a judgment today on you, your teaching and your course, on whether they enjoyed it, whether or not it is going to be interesting, valuable or useful for their learning. And that these judgments and the decisions that follow will affect their engagement and potentially their achievement. And all of this is shrouded in emotions. Emotions are fundamental to learning and to teaching. The experience of positive emotions and the minimization of destructive negative emotions is important, in fact, essential for learning. Students experience positive emotions when they feel safe and connected, when they have a sense of competence, autonomy and agency, when they're interested and when learning has relevance, value and meaning to their lives. The experience of positive emotions can promote learning through heightening interest, attention, curiosity, engagement, enjoyment and flow. Positive emotions can help students open their minds to other possibilities, to problem solve, to think creatively, to explore different perspectives, to encourage academic risk-taking, persistence and a growth mindset. Emotional states are also contagious and you as the teacher have a primary responsibility for setting the emotional state of the learning environment. So as to promote and spread positive emotions, both in the classroom and online, you model positive states. You have planned your class to be welcoming, active, conversational, interactive, and with real world connections. The time seems to fly past and before you know it, you're logging off the online video call acknowledging the many chat comments saying thanks and see you next week. The students in class smile and wave as they leave. You look forward to next week and you remind yourself to design the next learning and teaching experience with emotions in mind. Hello, my name is Shona Douglas and I'm a senior lecturer in accounting and finance at the Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, Scotland. My teaching tip today is to utilise online quiz platforms creatively to engage both online and face-to-face -face students. There are lots of online quiz platforms now available, including some free options. Most of these offer a short text option along with the trusty multiple choice. Now, I think multiple choice can be great. I particularly like this to gauge a class response or opinion and also for right or wrong type questions where the other options can be common wrong answers. But today, I encourage you to think about different ways to use the short text answers. At a first level, asking students to post an example or say a relevant journal often gets a much better response than asking without the quiz platform. I find the initial anonymity seems to really help those less confident students. And once I acknowledge the value of the contributions, I find they're often much more willing to contribute to follow-up discussions. More creatively, I've also had a great response to quiz questions asking students to create a jingle to remember a key concept. Or similarly, you could ask them to create an advertising slogan to sell their idea. Summarising a concept or theory in, say, 20 words or less can be challenging, but really makes the students think about the key elements. Summarising an academic journal or resource is also a key skill for students to develop. And again, the short text answer in a quiz can provide an excellent platform to encourage participation. Again, try to be creative in how this is packaged to grab attention and increase motivation. So move beyond the just, can you summarise, to, for example, can you make a newspaper headline to communicate the key findings? Or can you explain it in 30 words or less to a specified audience, like a small child, a peer, or say in the style and word count of a selected social media platform? One of my colleagues, for example, had great success doing this as a Twitter post. 
Another alternative for a journal is to ask them to guess the keywords from a shown abstract. Once input to the quiz, these can be compared to their peers and those of the journal to start a discussion. Finally, for a bit of fun and a little bit different, can they summarise an article only using emojis? So, just a few ideas to hopefully get you thinking of some alternative ways to use the online quiz platforms. I hope you find this useful and thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Associate Professor Joanne Chuck and I'm Head of Teaching and Curriculum at Western Sydney University. My top teaching tip is listen to your students. Sounds simple, but in listening to our students and getting them to interact with us, we develop a whole lot of skills for them in their understanding of their professional identity, but also in being able to unpack where misconceptions are when they're trying to solve complex problems. I use a lot of process-orientated learning in my teaching. That is, taking students through the journey of what's required to to be able to solve complex problems or to actually participate in complex discussions. Through that process, the staff member can understand if there is a breakdown in the student's learning and address it immediately rather than the student just being told that they've, been, they've got the wrong answer at the end of a complex series of steps. For us to be able to do that, it does require us to build a relationship with our students and think about the power relationship between the two, uh, the two groups, the role of curriculum, the responsibility of the learner, and of course where that student is in their professional identity development. In first year, this can be quite challenging, as we all know, when the you know, students are very reluctant to put their hand up in class. But we hope by third year, we have developed that teaching relationship so our students are confronting us in coffee shops, for instance, challenging us or extending the discussions that have been happening in class in informal or co-curricular, extracurricular environments. This is very, very powerful on their learning journey. And as I say, developing them, themselves as a professional in their chosen field. This episode of the Times Higher Education podcast was sponsored by Routledge, one of the world's leading academic publishers serving instructors, scholars, and professional communities worldwide. Feeling inspired after today's podcast? Visit the Routledge website to browse key titles in your area and access free resources to help you elevate your teaching today. In an exclusive offer to THE listeners, don't forget to use code THE20, that's code THE20, to get 20% off orders. But be quick, the offer expires October 22nd, 2022. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of the Times Higher Education Podcast and a huge thanks to our mini teaching community that includes Becky Lewis, Sarah Ivory, Jack Wang, Melanie Brown, Yona Goodwin-Johnsdaughter, Ranvig Bjork-Thorkel's daughter, David Doddick, David Clark, Lael Hakim, John Weldon, Stephanie McMahon, Shauna Douglas, and Joanne Chuck. If you've got an idea for an upcoming episode or want to get involved, email me at sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.